scripture reading this morning is coming from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 7 through 16. Again, that's Jonah, chapter 1, verse 7 through 16. And it reads, And they said one to another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that thou have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said, then then said they to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back onto dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Fear the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord unto the people of God. Amen. We've been going through the book of Jonah. We've come to verses 7 through 16, which reminds me, if you are into such things, if you need a status update for your Facebook page, here's one for you. That you can't outrun God. You cannot outrun God. Francis Thompson wrote the well-known poem, The Hound of Heaven. It has been called the greatest ode in the English language. Francis Thompson was born in the mid-19th century in England to a well-to-do Roman Catholic family. His father was a physician, and his parents wanted him to be a physician as well. But actually, he detested the occupation and wanted to be a writer. But his family insisted, and so he went to medical school. But following medical school, he, he failed the exam three times. And following failing the exam the last time, he fled from his home and he fled to London where he hoped to become a writer. But unfortunately for him, it didn't pan out exactly as he had hoped and he ended up getting a few odd jobs trying to make ends meet and long before long he found himself out on the streets. And before long he found himself addicted to opium father sent him money 
in the care of a local library if he could get in there to get it, but the library wouldn't let him in because he looked so shabby. Eventually he was found in the streets by a, a prostitute. It became known that he was a writer and some families befriended him and began to publish some of his writings in the local papers. And people began to see that there was a great writer among us, but no one knew exactly who it was. Francis Thompson eventually died, almost totally in obscurity. But perhaps his most famous poem tells this story. It's called The Hound of Heaven. It reads, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter. Because in his, in his mind, Thompson thought himself running from God. He fled from God in the country. He fled from God in the, seat, in the streets of, of London. He fled from God in addiction and dereliction. And yet to Thompson's exhaustion, he believed that God hounded him and hounded him. So keenly aware was this pursuit that Thompson wrote, The Hound of Heaven. I fled him, but everywhere I fled him, he hounded me. Jonah is the biblical account of the hound of, of heaven. No doubt, no doubt, Jonah knew that he was running with God in pursuit. And what Jonah soon learned, and I pray that you and I would learn it, if we haven't learned it before, that we would learn it this morning, is that you can't outrun God. You can't outrun God. In fact, I would suggest to you in our text this morning that there's three things that the Bible reminds us that you can't outrun. You can't outrun the providence of God. So Jonah demonstrates for us. You can't outrun the, promise, the, the providence of, of God. You can't outrun your sin. And you can't outrun the grace of God. And you can't outrun the providence of, of God. This idea of providence, what is it? Well, providence is simply the idea of God ordaining and maintaining the universe according to his will. It is God governing and working all things out for his glory and the praise of his name. It is the governance of God over all things. It is God providing and, and caring and orchestrating and guiding the cares events in the people of this world. The Heidelberg Catechism describes providence as this. The almighty ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and the earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, 
food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Well, how must our brockles? Theologians said that the providence of God pertains to everything is so clearly revealed in nature and in scripture that whoever denies the providence of God is no better than an atheist or at best must be as blind as a mole. Beloved, God ordains and executes his will throughout all creation. And when, and when Jonah refused to heed the call of God to, to Nineveh and instead to go down to Tarshish, Jonah discovered this remarkable reality. For the Bible says in verse 4, as we saw last week, that God hurled a wind, a great wind upon the sea. And Jonah discovered two things about the providence of God. Discovered that God is in control of the elements and God is in control of events. God is in control of the elements. For, for Jonah perceived himself to be escaping from the hand and the will of God. But what, what we find is that Jonah has as much chance escaping the will of God as he has of outrunning the wind. And this is what he finds out. And while the rest of the men on the boat, the Bible says, are, is wondering the source of this tempestuous wind, Jonah knew. He knew that it was the only true God who, who controls and sustains even the elements of nature. Which says in Amos chapter 4 and verse 7, God says, I make it rain on one city and withhold rain from another city. It's God who's in control of the elements, beloved. Now, now we know this. Instinctively, we know this. All human beings know this. Those who call upon God, those who have faith in Jesus Christ or, or not, we instinctively know this, and that's why when we see a great storm in nature, we refer to it as an act of God. They do that on secular television. And newscasters will get on, the reporters will call it an act of God. Because instinctively, we know there must be something behind the mighty elements of nature. Even those who pretend to acknowledge God and pretend to worship God still refer to the natural uncontrollable forces of nature as acts of God. Hurricanes. Tornadoes, typhoons, tsunamis, earthquakes. Eventually, eventually, 
We read in Psalm 147, beginning in verse 15, it is God who sends out his command on the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He's, he casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? Who sends out his word and it melts them? Who causes the wind to blow and the water to flow? He causes the wind to blow. He causes the waters to flow. In a real sense then, beloved, if you know this, then this should be a comfort to you. This should be a comfort in your life. It is a, it is a comfort that God is in control of all the elements, not only when the storms hit the world, but when the storms come crashing upon my life. Remember in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus was out on the boat with his disciples, and Jesus is asleep upon the boat, and a storm like they had never seen before begins to rage out there in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. And they wake Jesus up, and they say, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? And Jesus looks at them, as if to say, in fact, I care more than you do. Oh, ye of little faith. Then he looked at the wind and he looked at the waves and he spoke the word, peace. Then he said, waves, be still. And they looked at each other. And they said, what manner of man is this? That even the, the wind and the waves obey him. Because Jesus could speak to the waves just like he speaks to his sheep. They know his voice. They hear him and they obey. Because the nature and the element are no different to him than sheep are to a shepherd. They know their shepherd's voice. And when they hear, they obey. Again, this is a great comfort to us because there are no storms that are not subject to our Lord's will. No storms, whether they are out there in nature or whether they are in my home or whether they are in my heart. There are no storms that are not subject to the will of our Lord. And in fact, beloved, I like what someone has, has said, that it would be the height of discouragement if I came to know that there was an affliction or there was a trial in my life that did not come from the hand of God. Oh, God, please be in control. You want him in control. And I want to see that there is not 
a test or a trial or an affliction that comes to me that did not come from God. Because then I know he's working it out for my good. Because then I know when I call on him, he can actually do something about it. Because he is in control. And that's why we sing, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The, the moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. There is nothing, nothing of the elements that are outside of his sovereign will. And not only is he in control of the elements, beloved, he is in control of events. All the events. All the events. Notice what the, well, notice what the, what the sailors do. When, when the men of the boat seek to know the reason for their troubles, the reason for this great storm suddenly coming up against them, notice what they do. The Bible says that they cast lots. And the lot, the Bible says in verse 7, fell on Jonah. Now what were lots? Well, lots were used in various times and various ways in the Bible in order to discern perhaps the divine will. It was used by believers and unbelievers as we see in our text. It was a common practice seeking to make decisions and define particularly the will of God. In fact, on occasion, God even ordained the use of lots. In Leviticus chapter 16, beginning in verse 8, the lot is used for selecting animals for the offering. In both Numbers and in, in Joshua, we see that the lots were used for the dividing of the land among the tribes of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in, in verse 20, King Saul, the Bible says, was chosen by lot. And even in the New Testament, when the disciples are gathered together on the day of Pentecost and they decide that someone must replace Judas, so again, to make the number of the disciples and the apostles whole to 12 again, how do they choose the disciple that would replace Judah, uh, Judas? The Bible says in, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 26 that they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias casting of lots. What were they? Well, we don't, we don't know exactly what they were. Something akin to perhaps rolling dice or drawing straws or doing rock, paper, and scissors. Something of that nature. Who, who knows? But for sure, they were looking, and this is the key, beloved, they were looking for the will of God and what seems to be just a random, fortuitous, chance-taking event. They're just drawing straws. They're just doing rock, paper, and scissors. 
yet if the Bible tells us anything, it reminds us again and again that there is no such thing as random and chance events. God's people don't do lucky. God is like Jason Bourne. He doesn't do random. There are no random events, not even in the casting of lots. For the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Kings rise and kings fall. Presidents and mayors get elected and presidents and mayors leave office, all according to the sovereign plan and the providential will of God. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. In Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, the Bible says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes time and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Knowledge to those who have understanding comes from God. So that we know that the knowledge of Jonah did not come ultimately from the casting of lots. It came from God. Don't think much of the casting of lots, beloved. That knowledge and wisdom and insight came from God. This is so important that you... And I see the hand of God in all the affairs of our lives. Give yourself not one moment of, or, or of credit or comfort in believing that you have done anything in your own power, wisdom, or, or strength. Always observe the providence and the hand of God. Always. Always see God at work in your life. Like Joseph, from the pit to the prison to the palace, God had his hand on Joseph the whole way. So does he have his hand on you too. Do you see it? Are you observing it? The Puritans would say, he who observes providence has providence to observe. If you would take the time to look around and look for the hand of God in your life, you will see the hand of God in your life. And you will see it more and more and more as you seek to see it. It's there. And the more that you seek to observe the providence of God, the more of the providence of God you will observe. See that all creation, great and small, belong to him. Don't think for a moment, don't think for a moment that the song, he's got the whole world in his hand, is just a ditty for kitties. 
It is not just the kitty ditty, beloved. It is full of some of the simplest and yet most profound theology you could ever sing because our God does have the whole world in his hands. And be quick to see the hand of God in the events and the affairs of your life. Because even though the sailors have yet to see it, you know who did observe that providence? Jonah. Jonah could see the invisible hand of God tracking him all the way. Jonah knew the invisible hand of God in the events surrounded him, and he knew it was God because not only could not Jonah outrun the providence of God, Jonah understood that you can't outrun your sin. This is what he came to see. This is what he came to see in seeking to outrun God. Jonah was trying to outsprint his sin. He was trying to outdistance his disobedience. You know what the Bible reminds us in Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23? Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. When you run, when you seek to run from your sin, eventually, sooner or later, two things happen, and they happen to Jonah. Two things eventually happen. First is going to be, eventually, there's going to be a confrontation. You're going to eventually be confronted. Once the lot fell on Jonah, the sailors went to Jonah and asked, in verse 8, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And they confront him. And the reason that they confront him is because his sin no longer affected just him. That's why eventually there's going to be a confrontation, beloved, because you and I need to understand that our sin rarely, if ever, only affects us. Sailors knew something was amiss. This was a storm unlike they had ever known. And now Jonah's sin was putting them in peril. This is a principle that the Bible illustrates over and over and over again. In Joshua chapter 7, when Achan sins and is disobedient and does contrary to what God commands the nation of Israel, just Achan causes terror and hardship for the whole nation. When David in 2 Samuel chapter 24 takes the senses and counts the people against the command and the will of God. The Bible says, on account of David's sin, 70,000 people die. And one of the, the greatest of them all with Adam. The 
The Bible reminds us, doesn't it, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it didn't just affect Adam and Eve. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 begins to tell us that through Adam, death came into the world and death spread to all men and women because in Adam we all sinned. Because you and I need to be aware and be reminded that our sin never affects only us. This is the reason why you can't outrun your sin because it will affect those around you. Sons and daughters, your sin affects your parents. Husbands, your sin affects your wives. Wives, your sin affects your husbands. Fathers and mothers, your sins affect your children. Brothers and sisters, your sin affects others. And therefore, God will bring it to life. Didn't we learn that in Galatians? Chapter 5, when we saw that God is not mocked. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a person sows, this shall he also reap. God is going to bring that sin to light. In Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 17, he says, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. God knows, and he not only knows, but he reveals. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 22, he says, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. God is going to reveal it. And when God has that confrontation, when God does reveal it, what inevitably must happen? Well, the thing that happened with Jonah. Because once the confrontation is there and once the sin and disobedience is revealed, you are going to recognize it. And that's what Jonah does. Following the confrontation, there is a recognition. Jonah recognizes. I can't run anymore. I know what's going on. Jonah is not ignorant of his disobedience. And beloved, we rarely are. Rarely are. But we do what Jonah didn't do. For when Jonah was confronted with his sin and Jonah began to recognize that it is his sin that has caused this peril, Jonah doesn't make any excuses. He makes no excuses unlike us. That's the first thing. Immediately when we're confronted with our sin, the first thing we want to do is make excuses for it. We want to excuse ourselves in some way. I know I shouldn't have said that, but. I know he's not saved, but. I know I should be serving, but. The first thing we want to do in the midst of our disobedience is to make excuses. But notice, 
Jonah makes no in fact, he admits who he is. He says, I am a Hebrew. I know what's going on. I'm a Hebrew. I'm not ignorant of these things. He knows that he is different. He knows that he is called out by God. He knows that he is set apart for God's service. He knows, says, I am a Christian. I know I should be doing better than that. I know I shouldn't be living in that disobedience. I understand. No excuses. I am a child of God. I am called by his spirit. I know I am a Christian. Man, I wish, I wish they would come in my office and just give that recognition. I know I'm a Christian pastor. I know I shouldn't be doing that. But, Jonah doesn't give a but. He said, no, I'm a Hebrew. I know who I am, and I know I'm wrong. But I not only know who I am, but he admits that he knows who God is. For I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah says, I'm not ignorant of what's going on here. I know why the, the waves are, are crashing against the boat. I know why the wind is blowing. I know why the storm is raging. I am not ignorant of who God is. He is Yahweh. He is the sovereign living God. He not only admits who he is and he not only admits who God is, he admits what he has done. So they say to him, what is this that you have done? What in the world have you, what have you done that has gotten us into this predicament? You are fleeing from the presence of God. Beloved, I think we can be for sure, we can be for sure that our sin will find us out. God loves you too much to allow you to just stay in sin. Listen, listen, listen to me, okay, listen. If, if you go on sinning and the Lord doesn't bring conviction if you go on sinning and the Lord doesn't bring confrontation, if you go on sinning and there is nothing in your heart that pulls you away from that, you should fear for your soul. That God doesn't care. Oh, that God would prick me every day for it reminds me that I belong to him. And he would point my sin out every day for it says that he cares. He wants me on the right path. He wants me in the way of his obedience. He wants me in faith. Don't get too offended 
when your sin is pointed out. In fact, don't get offended by the pointer. Be offended by the sin. And thank God, thank God that he loves you enough to care. To point out your disobedience. This is the, this is the marvelous good news. The good news is that the reason that God won't let you stay in sin is because he delights for you to delight in his grace. This is why you can't outrun your sin. Because God is determined to catch you and show you that you can't outrun his grace. That's what happens here. You know, beloved, it is an amazing truth that sinners rebel against a good God. That is an amazing truth when you really think about it. Just how good God is. And yet we rebel all the time. When you think about the goodness of God and all that he's done for you, and instead of crying out hallelujah, you rebel and live in disobedience. It's amazing reality that those of us who know the goodness of God yet rebel against him. But here is an even more profound truth that this good God pursues and delights to redeem those who rebel against him. Just think about that. He's good to you. You rebel and you run from him. And then he comes and pursues you. Now, that is really beyond most of our comprehension. Because there I say there's very few of us in here who would do that. Uh, if I was overly good to you, and I fed you, and I clothed you, and I took care of you, and I provided for you, and I went out of my way to do all those things that you needed to do, and then you turned around and spit in my face and ran out the door, would I come after you? Amen. I would think myself good if I just left the door open. For if you ever got in the mind to come back home, if I left a plate at the table, I would think myself good and I could line up a hundred Christians who would say, you're doing good. A lot of them would say, you're doing more than I would do. God doesn't just leave the door open. God doesn't just put a plate at the table. He leaves and comes chasing after you. And he's not going to stop until he gets you. Goodness and mercy shall pursue you all the days of your life. And this is what happens here. Goodness and mercy comes running. 
you might think that once Jonah is identified by the lot, and the reason for the storm is acknowledged because Jonah admits his disobedience, things would begin to calm down, and they would all get back to normal. That's what Jonah thinks, right? That's what Jonah thinks. But Jonah tells them, he says, well, this is what you need to do. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sea will calm down, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. But you know, the goal of God is not just the admission of our sin. The goal of God is not just that we would admit our sin. The desire of God is just is that we and everyone would acknowledge our need of him. Not the admission of your sin, but the acknowledgement that you need him. Every day, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Do you know that the end of our preaching here, the end of our preaching is not just that you would know that you are a sinner, but rather the end with that is the glory that you would have in rejoicing in the grace and the goodness of God to redeem and save you from your sin. That's God's design. That's his desire. That's his end. Notice the storm doesn't just stop. Jonah tells the sailors, throw me overboard. It's going to stop. The sailors don't listen to Jonah. Why would they? The reason we're in this mess. They don't listen to Jonah. But rather than listening to Jonah, the sailors decide that they're going to spare his life, and they begin to head for the shore. And they start rowing. They start rowing, and they rowing, and they, and they rowing, and the Bible says that the more they rowed, rowed the more the sea raised. Here's the grace of God. The grace of God is seen, first of all, when they came to an end of themselves. When they came to an end of themselves, the more they rowed, the worse it got. The more they rowed, the worse it became. And once they realized their efforts were getting them nowhere, they stopped. Beloved, you won't know the grace of God until you give up trying to save yourself. It is when you come to the realization that you can't get yourself to the shore. You can't get yourself out of the storm that is sin in your life. When you come to the realization to put the oar down is then that you're going to experience 
the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 reminds us that salvation is by grace through faith. This is not of ourselves. You don't save yourself. It is when you come to an end of yourself that you experience the salvation of the Lord. They came to an end of themselves. And when they came to an end of themselves, it is there that they came to know the Lord. It is there that they came to know the Lord. And here is the glory of it all. When you come to an end of yourself, what you will find there is God. That's where he is. He's at the end of you. And that's what they found. This is where God always is. Notice what Jonah does. Jonah introduces God to them. Jonah is supposed to be going to Nineveh to preach God, to be set to preach salvation through God. Jonah is on this boat in disobedience in the midst of the storm and Jonah begins to do what God had ordained Jonah to do and that is proclaim the name of the Lord. For he introduces them to the God of heaven. But for the first time in the prophecy of Jonah, Jonah speaks the name of the Lord. He speaks the name of the Lord. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh. I fear Yahweh. This is the name that God gives to his people by which they are to know him. This is the name of the God of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. This is the holy name of God. The God who gives a self-revelation of himself to Moses when he says, I am that I am, is this name. In fact, when Moses asks God, who are you? Tell me who you are. God says in Exodus chapter 34, Beginning in verse 6, the Bible says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's who he is. That's Yahweh. That's a covenant, faithful name of God. 
That is the God. That is the name that God has given to his people whereby they would know him, enter into covenant with him, have their sins forgiven, and receive the steadfast love and mercy of God. The Lord, Yahweh. And notice what these heathen sailors do. When they stop rowing, when they come to an end of themselves, what do they do? They praise, not to God, for they had prayed to God before, but now they call upon the Lord. Now they call upon Yahweh. In verse 14, you see their prayer. They prayed, O oh Lord. They prayed, O oh Lord. But not only did they pray, they pleaded, O oh Lord, have mercy and let us not perish. They prayed to the God of heaven and earth. They prayed to the covenant faithful God. They prayed to the only God who could do anything about their circumstances. And they not only prayed, but then they pleaded with him. Have mercy on us. Have mercy. Do not let us perish for our sins. Do not let us be overwhelmed by your wrath. Then they not only prayed and they not only plead, but then they praised him. They said, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Three times. Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. How dare you call upon the name of Yahweh unless you know him? Oh, beloved, here are men who were not taking the name of the Lord in vain. They were taking the name of God upon their lips because they had come to an end of themselves and they understood that there was no rescue for them outside of God. There was no salvation for them outside of the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jonah. This is a reminder to us this morning. It's not enough just to know a God. You have to know the true God. And they now know him by name. And it is not enough, beloved, just to know about God. You have to know his I want to press that upon you this morning. It is not enough just to know a God. And it is not enough just to know about God. But you have to know his name. And what is that name? But the Bible tells us that his name is salvation. The Bible tells us that his name is wonderful. 
the Bible tells us that his name is Jesus. Oh, what a wonderful child. You must know his name. Don't call simply on God this morning, for the revelation of God has progressed and it has become more full than Jonah ever knew. When you call on God, you must call on Jesus. It is not simply calling on God. You can call on God till the cows come home. If you don't know his name is Jesus, there is no hope. There is no salvation. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 1, in verse 21, when the angel came to Joseph and told Joseph, Mary's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. Because that's his name. His name is salvation. His name is wonderful. His name is hope. His name is Jesus. This is what Peter reminded them in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, that there is no other name given under heaven and on earth whereby men and women must be saved. What is the name? The name is Jesus. That's his name. That's the name of the covenant faithful God who come to save. You come to an end of yourself. His name is Jesus. Oh, what a wonderful child. And there is no sweeter name. There is no sweeter name. I'm telling you, when those men on that boat called out to Yahweh, I could hear myself calling on Jesus. And I know in my life that there has been no sweeter name. No sweeter name I know but the name of Jesus. Oh, beloved, I pray this morning that you would call on him. Call on him with all of your being. Call on him with everything you have. Call on Jesus. That God would be so gracious and reveal himself to you and allow you to know the name. Call on him. There is salvation in no other. Oh, how sweet the name of Jesus. There is no In him is salvation. In him is grace. In him is eternal life. Call on Jesus and be saved. Let's pray.